0: Greetings, dear listeners. This is Jonah Goldberg. This is another edition of the Remnant Podcast. I am talking to you from my hotel room in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. And part of the, uh, I should say up front, uh, this week's episode is brought to you by Conversations with Bill Kristol and w- and from the Bonson Group. And you'll hear more about them in a little bit. Um, as I said, I'm talking to you from Uh, My hotel room in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, I'm giving a talk tonight at the Wisconsin Institute for Liberty and Law, and all of our plans to do a relatively normal remnant podcast were blown up because of the world historical fecal matter fiesta. Um, Well, there's our title. (laughs) I didn't want to say the uh, S show. Um, but it is, I've never, I mean, I can't, as an adult, I don't, I don't remember seeing anything like these Kavanaugh hearings. Um, you haven't actually been watching them, right, Jack? You've just been sort of dipping in and out?
1: No, whenever something like this takes
2: over the swamp, I just resent having to pay attention to it.
0: Yeah, I get that, but this is one of these things that, I I mean, as pure human drama, I am, I am, I am glued to it, and I'm kind of pissed that I even have to do this, because, it's it's going on. As, it's still going on as we speak. I'll just say, as, like with a lot of people, I was texting with an enormous number of people. I'm not a huge texting guy, but uh, this was a sort of special occasion. And when uh, Dr. Ford was testifying, the overwhelming consensus was, "Oh crap, Kavanaugh's done. She's credible. Uh, she's effective." And you know, Kavanaugh still may be done, but when he came on, that consensus kind of blew up. And I just it's it's an astounding political moment. I think uh, one of the most dismaying things um, and really gives you a sense of the sort of disproportionality and asymmetry of this of this moment is that uh, and I'm sure there was a random jackass or two on the right who are mocking uh, Dr. Ford was mocking Dr. Ford when she was testifying. But overwhelmingly, the the sort of mainstream conservative types were saying that she was compelling, that she was uh, credible, that what, regardless of what actually may or may not have happened, she certainly seemed sincere, and that she wasn't um, just simply making this stuff up out of whole cloth as a as, as an operative to destroy Kavanaugh. All in all, it was very, you know, it was overwhelmingly respectful, at least from what I saw on Twitter. I, admittedly, I only would sort of recap on Twitter after the testimony because I wanted to give her all of my attention. But the amazing thing was when Kavanaugh started to speak and was emotional and defiant and, and full of what I would argue is righteous anger, um, the response from these sort of opposite numbers on the liberal side was just sneering contempt and mockery and uh, giving him no benefit of the doubt. And uh, among the worst and most maddeningly nasty Examples of it was actually from someone who pretends to be a conservative these days, Jen Rubin, who was just consistently mocking and disdainful and saying that because he was angry and emotional, that proved he wasn't fit to be on the court, which was a talking point that exploded. Um, Of course, if he had been unemotional and stoic and reserved, the response was, Yaha, just like all serial killers. Um, you know, he's a cold, heartless bastard in a machine who doesn't care about things and has no feelings. The sort of damned if he does, damned if he doesn't attitude on all of this was so disgusting. Um, and I don't, lots of lawyers will tell you it's very difficult when you have two people who are compelling and emotional on the stand uh, to decide who is telling the truth if they contradict each other, which is one of the reasons why you're supposed to go to facts and evidence and corroborating testimony to adjudicate these things. If simply emotional passion and affect governed how we decided guilt or innocence. Uh, basically, if you were a good actor, uh, you could be a serial killer. And yet, the, the sort of just blanket willingness to... I mean, it's been gone on display for such a w- long time now that whatever, whenever there is uh, evidence of any kind provided, even if it's secondhand corroboration or merely another allegation... Big swaths of the mainstream media, lots of liberals, instantly say, aha, this is proof. And then when there are there is character testimony, vastly more character testimony, supporting Kavanaugh. Well, of course, that's what those people would say. You can't weigh any of that. Um, whenever, you know, when Ed Whalen made the mistake of, you know, putting out those unfounded, you know, insinuations about that guy from high school, everyone was immediately, this is outrageous to float. These unsupported allegations. Let's get back to believing every one of Dr. Ford's unsupported allegations. The, the the double standard here is maddening, and I think it really explains why so many conservatives who are not fans of Donald Trump or of Trumpism or of how he conducts himself have sort of rallied in all of this. Even while you know most of us, as far as I can tell, are still open-minded about the idea that maybe, you know, Ford is telling the truth, or at least telling the truth that um you know, I got into this I had this weird experience on NPR where they had me on, I had to get up at three o'clock in the morning and do it. The first recording didn't it was a mess. And it so enraged people that there would be um, I, I think I blew up and burnt up all of my official house goy status as a likable conservative on NPR for saying that to themselves has been outrageous. And it has. I mean it's just been a nonstop stream of guilt by association of Uh, presumption of guilt, and it's so friggin' disgusting. And it seems to me if you could just take a step back and take the R's and D's away from people's names and just describe these events objectively, people would be able to see how you can't run a country like this. But that's not what's going on, and I was going to have Charlie Cook on, and we were going to do a long conversation about this and go point-by-point point through things. But this hearing is going on, Charlie needs to finish the hearing. I need to go to an event. So instead, we have done what we have been talking about doing for a very long time. We, we recorded a conversation between Charles Murray and me. Um, when did we do this, Jack? Uh, back in June. Yeah, so it's been on the shelf since June. Uh, we, we recorded it at AEI and we figured... Okay, there's surely going to be at some point during the book tour where we're going to sort of have to break glass and, you know, in case of emergency, and use this conversation. So that's what we're doing this week. I don't remember exactly how it went, but I thought it went pretty well at the time. There was an audience, and we're going to run that. Uh, but now let's, um, and know, and so it, just so you know, I'm I'm going to record after this the closing, and uh, Jack will find an opportune place to insert a word from our censors. So thanks for listening. Thanks for the indulgence. And hopefully um, next week will be a little more normal.
2: This is going to be a conversation uh, which Jonah and I never have a problem maintaining. However, Jonah has just come out with a book the suicide of the West. Uh, that is really important. It is uh, about the central issues of what's going on in this country at this time. And I can't think of any better way to start than to have Jonah just give us a tour of the horizon of what the book is about.
0: Yes, yeah, so I've written this book. I'm sorry if I seem disoriented and tired. You know, first of all, I've been drinking all day. But, <laughs> um, but also, uh, it's been a pretty grueling. A uh, few weeks on the road, waking up in motels covered in blood, not my own. I mean, all sorts of strange <laughs> things. Um, and uh, and it was, it's been a fairly exhausting time, and I'm fairly sleep-deprived. So, uh, and the news about Charles Krauthammer kind of hit me kind of hard. So, on that cheery note, let's talk about Suicide of the West. So, some of you may have already started reading it. Uh, so apparently, we gave most of you free copies of it, which, you know... Bums me out because he should have paid for it. Um, <laughs> but uh, imagine you're an alien from outer space. And I don't mean like a Dennis Kucinich kind of alien. I mean like a real alien. And you've been tasked with monitoring the progress of Homo sapiens on planet Earth from the moment that we allegedly split off from the Neanderthals about 250,000 years ago. There's an argument about how long ago it happened. We don't need to get into all that. And so you're, you're, I, the idea is that you can only... um You have to monitor the progress of Homo sapiens, but you can only visit once every 10,000 years. So the first time you come to planet Earth, you show up in your spaceship, you open up the window, you turn on the monitors, you look down, and you're looking at Homo sapiens. What would you write in your journal? Well, you would write something along the lines of semi-hairless apes foraging and fighting for food. Come back in 10,000 years, you look down, semi-hairless apes foraging and fighting for food. No change. Come back in 10,000 years, Semi-hairless apes foraging and fighting for food, no change. Now, it's not not entirely fair to say there's no change. Migration patterns would change. The diets would change. But none of the big stuff would really change. You'd do this 23 times. On your 24th time, you show up, and you'd see some amazing changes. You would see the first city-states. You would see this novel invention in the evolutionary record called the home. These buildings that you would live in year-round. You would see agriculture, which is actually what creates things like the home, and uh, city-states, earthen pottery, you know, which I we all think is so incredible when we see it at a pottery barn or whatever. So um, you see some interesting things. You write it all down, you say, I can't wait to come back in 10,000 years. You come back in 10,000 years, what do you see? Well, first of all, your spaceship would probably get picked up by NORAD, and you might get here just in time to see, I don't know, like Miley Cyrus twerking at the Super Bowl, <laughs> which is to say that virtually all of the things that we associate with progress, modernity, science, have taken place in the last 10,000 years. The problem with this is that this is very misleading. It's sort of like me saying that between me and Jeff Bezos, our combined net worth is over $70 billion. <laughs> right? Um, it's technically true, but it kind of hides this important fact. And the important fact this hides is that almost all of the progress we've made in the last 10,000 years has actually happened only in the last 300. As Todd Buckholtz once put it, Man lived for most of his life on Earth no better on two legs than he had on four. Poverty is, in fact, the natural human condition. Man in his natural state, and when I say man, I mean humans. Man's natural condition, natural habitat, is to live a short life punctuated by an early death, usually from violence or some bowel-stewing disease. And this started to change once and only once in a reliable way, in one place and at one time in all of human history. Okay. Um, in England. Until then, until about 300, 350 years ago, the average human being everywhere on the planet lived on no more than $3 a day for 250,000 years. Douglas North and others basically argue that uh, economic growth, all things considered, was essentially zero for most of man's time on Earth. That is because poverty is our natural state. When people ask, why is there wealth, it is a profoundly stupid question. We know why there's wealth. It's because of this one thing that did it. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. This is, you can tell how tired and drunk I am. Uh, when people ask why is there poverty, it's an incredibly stupid question because we know why there's poverty. Poverty is the natural state of mankind. The only interesting question is why is there wealth? And so far there's really only one answer. This thing that um, I call the miracle, which includes the Enlightenment but is not limited to the Enlightenment. There's been a lot of kerfuffle about the Enlightenment of late. Um, we can talk about that if you like. But it also includes a scientific revolution. It includes lots of things, but but most importantly, what it includes is words, rhetoric, the story that we tell ourselves about ourselves radically changed about 300 years ago. I call this aspect of it the Lockean Revolution, not because John Locke created it, but because John Locke reflects it. He symbolizes it pretty well. If you want to go with, I don't know, Hume, be my guest. It basically boils down to this. It's the idea that our rights come from God, not from government. We are citizens, not subjects. Uh, The government works for us. We don't work for it. The fruits of our labors belong to us. We are captains of ourselves because the individual is sovereign. And therefore, innovation as well is a good thing. For most of human history, innovation was viewed very suspiciously by rulers because it challenged the status quo and the guilds that ruled society. So when I mean guilds, I mean economic guilds, but also throne, church, and all the rest. And and then for bizarre reasons that no one can really explain, although Deirdre McCloskey has worked really hard on about four books trying to explain it, and I think she's right in her conclusions, I'm just not sure that she's pegged how it happened, the plot changed, the story changed, the words that we use to describe the world changed, and the institutions changed with it. Up until the 1700s, innovation was considered a sin in Europe, the sin of curitas, questioning the established order. In China, innovators would have a good run for a while, and then the regime would realize that they were destabilizing the powers that be, and they would shut them down. Uh, Same thing in in the Middle East, same thing all around the world. Um, The story of Uber versus taxi commissions is not a new one. But the amazing thing about this miracle is that, for whatever reason, it got instantiated in the culture, it got instantiated in the rule of law, that um, you could innovate and that individuals were free. And so I'll sort of close with this point, is that the, the lessons here of this is not just that capitalism is good. Capitalism is good. If you're here at American Enterprise Institute after doing this thing, you're still unsure if capitalism is good maybe you should get a job as a taste tester in a lead paint factory. But um, <laughs> the point here, and this is something that has gotten me in a lot of trouble with some of my friends on the right, is that the natural, the conclusions I draw from this is that democracy, human rights, the rule of law, capitalism, all of these things are fundamentally understood as being, should be understood as being unnatural. If they were natural, they would have showed up in the evolutionary record a bit earlier. If you take ants and you dump them out on the floor of some alien plant on the ground on some alien planet, they will immediately start digging tunnels and nominating a queen. I don't know what ants do, but they'll do it, right? They do ant-like things. If you take humans and if you could strip from them the veneers of civilization and education that they get And have them in their natural state, what would they do? Well, they would behave a lot like the kids from um, Lord of the Flies. Thank you. And they would start running around with spears and war paint, worshipping animal heads and all the rest. Our nature is tribal. Hayek writes about this a lot in The Fatal Conceit, where he says one of the problems is, is that because we evolved in an environment that was tribal or we're in a little platoon, our brains look at the extended order of liberty, and they scream out, this is not natural. In my book, I argue this response is basically should be understood as romanticism, and that basically all of the totalitarian or authoritarian ideologies of the last 300 years are basically one form or another of romanticism, one form or another of tribalism. And so the the takeaway is is that civilization is a project, and you can't take your hands away and let Jesus take the wheel. We are all responsible for the civilization that we are in. If you don't keep pedaling forward, you fall over. Hannah Arendt used to say that every generation, Western civilization, is invaded by barbarians. We call them children. And she was absolutely right. Everybody, fortunately, I hope most of you guys don't have kids yet, but anyone who's had kids knows that kids come with an enormous amount of preloaded software, but they need updates. And that's what parents and families do, is they provide the updates. Everyone is born into a family is born a, a barbarian. They are born no different than a Viking baby a thousand years ago. What turns them into citizens in the 21st century is how they are civilized. And the front line of that process is the family. And when the family breaks down, human nature starts to take over. We know this story from the stories of street gangs for the last 300 years. Especially young men, when they're not properly civilized and they don't come from, from healthy backgrounds, they start acting like tribal men do everywhere, defending their turf, fighting with each other, competing to attract the most attractive women. And this is true all around the world and throughout time. And so the lesson I'm just trying to take away, leave, or start off the conversation with is just simply that, is that, that civilization is the process by which we work against our natures. And corruption should be properly understood as the process by which we indulge our natures too much. And we live in a moment shot through with romanticism where we tell people that your feelings are sovereign, that your gut is the highest moral authority, that if it feels good, do it. The only person you have to answer to is yourself, and that the highest form of authenticity is personal authenticity. This is not the stuff that sustains civilizations for very long. And so the reason I call the book Suicide of the West and not Death of the West or Decline of the West or anything like that is because suicide's a choice. We as a culture are making some suicidal choices. And um, I think there's an enormous amount of opportunity for us to talk ourselves back on the right path, but the first thing you got to do is start doing that.
2: Now, you guys have been here, some of you, one week, some of you have been here for the whole thing, right? And uh, so this is the conclusion, Right. So we're supposed to send you out of here optimistic and cheerful. Boy did you get the wrong two people <laughs> because I I'm tempted to say, well, l- you know, let me be more realistic, which means more pessimistic right. than yeah. you are, because you have Suicide. <laughs> yeah, you, you have Suicide of the West, uh which is, by the way, wonderful book. I blurbed it. I I, I blurb extremely few books. And the only blurb, uh, books I blurb are either somebody I have to because I'm so deeply indebted to them or I really like the book a whole lot. And I blurbed, uh, lavishly blurbed uh, Jonah's book because it is so good uh, read it. But I just want to add something. We are not talking about problems that involve Donald Trump uh, or that came about because of Donald Trump. Uh, my most recent uh, big book was uh, uh, By the People, which uh, is ba- basically documented the ways in which, before Donald Trump was in the picture, rule of law, you know, a really big thing. So that, I do a riff on that of, you know what? The law has become so complex, so subjectively interpreted, uh, it, it is so skewed toward the people who can afford to uh, get these sophisticated legal defenses and the rest of it that, you know what, it's not that different from the headman of the village uh, deciding what is best. There are all sorts of ways in which the way we administer the law now is indistingu- indistinguishable from lawlessness. Uh, I have a chapter on what's happened to the political process, which essentially is a riff on Mansur Olson, the economist from the University of Maryland, who I know Jonah also has learned a lot from, who says, guess what, guys? Democracies inevitably, inherently, inescapably break down. And why do they do it? It's something that James Madison knew in Federalist, whatever it was, I always forget the right number, 13, 11, 52, anyway, where he talks about faction.
0: It's like my my locker combination. (laughs) (laughs) (laughs)
2: It's <laughs> the way you remember it. Uh, Where well, he talked about factions, and once you get factions started, then then pe- once people realize they can start to use the power of the state for their benefit, then you get this cascading effect. Well, Mansur Olson uh, updated that and said, "Look, you have an asymmetry in a democracy of ability to mobilize large groups to support something, and the classic example is the sugar subsidy." Uh, the, the rules which make it so that we pay twice the world price of sugar here in the United States. And we have had Republican Congresses with large Republican majorities that tried to get rid of it for decades. Most recently, a couple of years ago, it always fails in the end. And why does it fail in the end? It fails because you only have, what, 20,000 sugar farmers? I don't know what the number is. It's a tiny number, but they really care about the sugar subsidy. And the rest of us would probably rather not pay twice the world price for sugar, but basically when you get down to it, is this is what's going to make me go out and campaign for a candidate? No. So you can't mobilize the uh, opposition. And what happens is you have 300,000 sugar subsidies. And why has that happened? Because of another disaster. You see, no matter what you say, I will top you. I will come back and I'll say, it's even worse. The other disaster is that, essentially, in the 1930s, and it was not a slippery slope, it was not, oh, gee, how did we ever get in this situation? The Supreme Court, in a series of half a dozen key decisions, said explicitly, we are now going to interpret these key clauses this way, and what they did was remove any of the restrictions of the enumerated powers. So, the government can basically sell anything. It has favors, all kinds of favors it can sell, and guess what? There's a market for them. So Jonah, in, in one sense, and I'm not going to go through... I'm, this does need to be a conversation. That's just one thing I want to say. We had huge institutional decay that occurred way before Donald Trump uh, entered the picture. And the other thing I want to put in the table is uh, sometimes people ask me what I've changed my mind about over the course of my career. One of them is that I have become more pessimistic about recovering community in an age of advanced capitalism. I used to be very fierce about this because you go back to Tocqueville in America with these voluntary associations, and I say that was the most libertarian moment in American history, where we had the most limited government and we had the most vibrant communities and so forth. And And part of me still believes that that's possible, but... This book, The Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism, that Daniel Bell published, what, 40 years ago now, said capitalism ultimately breeds its own destruction because it is inherently in conflict with a kind of community, not tribal community, Mm -hmm. but the kind of community in which people who live in physical proximity to each other voluntarily help each other out and so forth. Okay, so we've got a lot of problems on the floor here. Uh, So, only
0: a couple things I would add. I I, I do kind of feel like, uh, you know, Richard Dreyfus and Robert Shaw and Jaws competing over scars. (laughs) (laughs) I can beat that! uh,
2: um,
0: First of all, I would argue that uh, as good a book as Cultural Contradictions of Capitalism is, it all goes back to Schumpeter, and everybody is sort of downstream of Schumpeter making that argument as well. But we can get to that if you want. Um, That's
2: getting really nerdy. Yes. Yes. No,
0: but, but it's it's one of my pet nerdy things is that I I think Joseph Schumpeter is the guy who figured out this new class argument in that how capitalism, he actually describes, and you want to get nerdy, um, he gets a lot of it from Nietzsche's genealogy of morals, where in, in Nietzsche, Nietzsche describes how there's the priestly class and the knightly class. The knightly class are the men of action, the heroic men who make their own morality, right, And the priestly class are basically the backseat drivers of civilization, and they resent that they're not behind the wheel. And so they use the only weapon that they have, because they have no armies, right, and they have no, um, money, but they're smart. And so what they do is they use their words, and they, and the concepts, and rhetoric, and what they do is they start talking down the virtues of the knightly class, through this process of called resentment, resentment, which is just the French way of saying resentment. It's really <laughs> annoying. Um, where they basically turn the, the knightly virtues of strength, honor, glory into vices. And they turn the former vices of meekness, humility, and whatnot into virtues. Now, this is partly Nietzsche's indictment of Christianity. I'm not subscribing to it, but you can see where he's coming from on this. And so part of my argument, and so Schumpeter takes this and he says, the problem with capitalism is, is that rich, innovative entrepreneurs tend to have kids who become lawyers. And those uh, those kids tend to become uh, women's studies professors, in effect, right? And so we now have this vast new class of people who talk down capitalism. There's a reason why American intellectuals for 50 years have been saying how much more enlightened the French are. Because in France, they value their intellectuals more. They're talking their book, as they say on Wall Street. So, so much, I think, of our problems today have to do with the fact that the people who control the commanding heights of our culture in Hollywood and on college campuses, they are openly hostile to the virtues and values that actually make capitalism possible, because they want to supplant it with something else. And I think all this comes out of Schumpeter, but it's very much, you know, consistent with the cultural contradictions argument. But going back to your first points about the sort of demosclerosis sclerosis Mansur Olson stuff. I find myself in all of these arguments about free trade and protectionism and almost everything else, going back to what I really kind of decided is maybe the most important passage from Adam Smith. where Adam Smith has this famous line where he says, and I'm going to completely butcher it, but he says, rarely if ever will two tradespeople or businessmen meet in a bar or a pub to have a conversation where the conversation won't quickly turn towards how they can conspire against the public good. It is just inhuman nature. It's what Albert J. Knock would call Epstein's law, to just take the shortest path possible for your own benefit. People form together into coalitions to protect their interests. Sugar subsidies are just one example of it on a broad scale. And, and Smith says, yeah, that's human nature. You cannot get around it. If you're going to get three guys who own paint stores to sit together at a bar, they're going to quickly come up with a way how they can all agree to jack up prices on paint and screw everybody, right? And the point that Smith makes, that Schumpeter then picks up on, is that's okay. That's faction. The founding fathers understood that factions were natural. What Paul Bloom at Yale calls the coalition instinct. This idea that people are going to form together to protect their interests. That's entirely natural. It's only pernicious in the long run when the state comes in and validates one faction and says... We're going to use the power of the state, the, power, the monopoly of violence that the state has, to enforce your monopoly. Because then it becomes permanent. Monopolies in a free market do not last. But when you get the state to come in and intervene in and short-circuit the free market and short-circuit democracy, those factions can become permanent and they can become entrenched in, in the power structure. That's the problem with the sugar subsidy thing. That's the problem with so much of what we have. That's the problem with protectionism. You know, we're basically saying that the government knows what the proper price of steel is, and they know where and how people should be buying their steel better than people who actually buy steel. Protectionism really is what it is. It's not protecting country. It's protecting certain industries that have curried favor with a specific regime. In the Obama administration, it was solar companies. In the, in the Trump administrations, it's coal and steel companies. It's the same dynamic, but just different winners and losers.
2: I want to go back to the culture, because, because basically all of you are living in a culture which exhibits the problems that Jonah and I are talking about. And by that, I mean the American campus. And by the problems I'm talking about, let's go back to the nightly... Mm-hmm. Uh, Tell me what the attitude is on your campuses toward things like honor, things like courage. What about if you were to use when you talk in a bull session in, uh, uh, late at night and you don't talk about people's values, suppose you talk about virtue and how are people going to react to the word virtue? I, I guess one of the things... These that- are
0: rhetorical questions, by the way. <laughs> yeah, rhetorical <sorry> <laughs>
2: But By the way, I think we should open this up to a conversation yeah, with, uh, with you guys real soon.
0: Because we've heard each other a lot. <laughs> <laughs> That's,
2: right. That's right. But essentially, you are living in a world where the dominating ethos, unless you go to a small handful of schools, the dominant, the dominant orthodoxy is one of first non-judgmentalism, of course, they're judgmental as hell, but uh, about people like us. Right. But but uh, non-judgmentalism, one form of the family. You can't say is better than another form of the family. You can't say that one culture is superior to another culture. That uh, that everything is sort of equal, and, you, and and you want to play nice with others. That's essentially, as far as I can tell, the dominating ethic of the the campus these days is ecumenical niceness. And, the, and and why don't you get try to get in a conversation with your classmates about the distinction between being nice and being good, and what that involves. And I have a feeling you're going to have a problem, uh, because the notion of the good is not out there very much. There are all sorts of ways in which you are watching around you a culture that is undermining The virtues that did make it so that you could have 19th century America, which were for all of its problems, okay, I'm not ignoring those, for all of its problems, you did have communities in which people did take care of each other, did do a variety of of good things, but why did they do that variety of good things? Part of it was enlightened self-interest. Part of it was also that everybody in the United States from about 1850 onward was educated with McGuffey's readers. And what were McGuffey's readers? They taught you how to read, but they also told you stories which started out as simple ones in second and third grade, and by eighth grade were very complex moral tales. And not saccharine, not sexist, not racist, not xenophobic. I've read them. You can go read McGuffey's readers online they were complex stories of what it means to live a good life what it means to be virtuous of what it means to be manly which is not to be macho but what it means to be manly is is a whole bunch of good things we had a culture that worked because of a large amount of self-restraint of self-government where you did not do certain things because it was not right or in some cases just because it was not seemly. It was not appropriate to lord it over your neighbors. It was not appropriate to uh, give them the finger, uh, figuratively speaking, because you had more money and more power than they did. Some people behaved this way. but You had a culture which restrained people through the force of uh, a coherent concept of virtue. And we pretty much lost that, too.
0: All right. This is a good place, or maybe it's not a good place, since I haven't heard the conversation, to our first sponsor this week, which is Conversations with Bill Crystal. If you're not aware, and you all should be aware, my friend Bill Crystal has a terrific series called Conversations with Bill Crystal. It's on YouTube. It's also out on a podcast. It's on iTunes, so you can subscribe there and wherever you get your podcasts. Bill's conversations include a wide range of really interesting topics and a diverse selection of guests, though he's never discussed, uh, as far as I'm aware, Bigfoot erotica. He's had Dick Cheney and David Axelrod. They've been more than a 100, and it's an impressive list to name a few. There's been Clarence Thomas, Gary Kasparov, Peter Thiel, Ben Sass, Christina Summers, Charles Murray, me. That's right, me. Uh, You can watch any and all of Bill's conversations on the website conversationswithbillcrystal.org. That's conversationswithbillcrystal.org. And you can subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts to be notified of a new release every other week. So if you like my podcast... And if you don't, why are you listening to this? You'll enjoy conversations with Bill Crystal.
2: Should we? Should we let people? Yeah. Well, awesome. let's do that. So the, and by the way, it doesn't have to be a question. You may argue with us. We're used to it. You can even call us names. We're used to that too. You know, it's. A, I'm going to start over here, and we'll. Uh, do we need to get a mic to him? Yes. Okay.
3: You can just wait for the by mic. By the way, and
2: then state I, for those name. who were still here from the first week. When I taught my course, it's so nice to be able to hear again. Uh, the, I taught a course three weeks ago when I was deaf, unless I had earphones on. and It was terrible.
3: My question is primarily for you, Mr. Goldberg, though I imagine Mr. Murray also has thoughts. But um, when you mentioned the Federalists and the necessity to recognize factionalism as a natural part of humanity. You framed it almost as if that is a sort of undeniable part of our politics, which we then proceed with. Um, and yet in your presentation about poverty and how poverty is natural to the human condition, um, the response of modern day people is obviously not to accept that natural fact. Obviously, we seek to eliminate global poverty um, we seek to transcend that despite the fact that it is historically natural. So I suppose my question more broadly taken is what, what confines of the natural are we willing to accept? What is the heuristic for determining that which, you know, we had 250,000 years ago that we have to accept, like factionalism, mm. and that which we can just cast away, like
0: sure. poverty? So it's an interesting question, and I'm particularly I'm grateful for it because so rare I get new questions. I've been on a book tour for six weeks. I've heard a lot of the same questions over and over again. So let me try and think this through. First of all, part of the problem I think is, is that you have a bit of a sort of a apples and oranges comparison here. Insofar as poverty is a function of a larger economic system. We are all, to this day, all of us, born poor. Even kids of rich people themselves are born naked, penniless, and ignorant, right? Um, But they're born into a system that can make them comparatively wealthy. And so I don't think that poverty is analogous as a function of human nature to the coalition instinct, um, which is what the sort of evolutionary psychologists would call the faction. right. One of the reasons why the American Revolution was a successful revolution, as opposed to the French Revolution, which wasn't, is that... Uh, what this, you know, in my standard line about enlightenments, there were a lot of different ones. Um, my, it's a bit unfair, but my basic position is borrowing from, so I married an axe murderer. If it's not, if it's not Scottish, it's crap. Um, and, uh, but the, the, the French enlightenment believed going out, borrowing from Rousseau and the perfectibility of man. Founding fathers didn't buy into any of that. They believed, you know, that we were born, that, uh, in the crooked dip, the crooked timber of humanity and will never be made perfectly straight. And so what they want to do is work within the confines of human nature, but channel it in productive ends. That's what all civilizations do. We are naturally violent. Period. You cannot erase that from us. But you can tamp it down or channel it into, towards productive ends.
2: But you have to recognize that it exists.
0: But you have to recognize it exists and work with it,
2: right? It's, yeah. it's
0: one of the limitations of the medium. It's like it's a lot like um and this is probably a better example than poverty you often hear particularly on like after school specials and hallmark cards that you have to be taught people have to be taught to hate just not true it's the reverse you have to be taught not to hate we are if you read Paul Bloom's book just Babies which is this great book that surveys the the literature on studies of babies right I think the oldest subjects in these tests are like maybe eighteen months two years old um and Fear not no babies were harmed in the conducting of these tests. He surveys how much hard how much software we come born with. We have a moral sense. Babies cry in accents almost from birth. So French babies will have a French accented cry, and Russian babies will have a Russian accented cry. They distrust people of a different phenotype or whatever you call it um, from their own parents, because they bond with that quickly. It is hardwired into us to initially distrust strangers. That is true in every society that has ever existed. We are hardwired into us to want to give preference to family and friends. Hardwired into every civilization that's ever existed. But it can be tamped down. One of the wonderful things about capitalism is that it lowers the tension involved in dealing with strangers. In a in the state of nature, is zero sum. You're carrying a bushel of apples, I want your apples, I hit you over the head with a rock and I take your apples. In a market, I give you money. You like money. I like apples. It's non-zero-sum. It's win-win. And so I think the way you figure out where the limits of human nature are is by talking about it, by studying it, by thinking seriously about it, and maybe designing a constitution that takes it into account. And of course, you learn things. When they wrote the constitution, they monstrously didn't include black people. They didn't include women. And then Western civilization... I had a big argument about these things and came to the morally right conclusion way too late that this was wrong, and we changed the Constitution. And so I'm perfectly fine. I'm to- totally open to correction about what the limits of how much we can change human nature are. But you're going to have a real hard time pers- persuading me that there are no limits to human nature. Please. And Charles knows a lot more about the limits of human nature than I do.
2: Let's take another, uh, I Sorry. basically agree with most, virtually everything you said.
4: I guess my question would point to what you mentioned about the cultural contradictions of capitalism, and I would like to extend that a little bit into what a lot of people say that classical liberalism, in the context of what that usually is mean, doesn't have the resources to provide for its own survival. Uh, And within that context, a lot of people have put um, Jonah Goldberg's book in in contrast to other books such as Patrick Dedeen's The Failure of Liberalism and so on. What kind of answer could we, I suppose, articulate when we have this sort of defense of these so-called liberal values, but also in contrast to other problems that you mentioned, like the decline of the family or this idea that we can have this liberalism that is no more than materialism, rationalism, a sort of valueless society that just makes sort of these very enlightened cost-benefit calculations that doesn't give much room for um, some of these essentials that you mentioned?
2: Yeah, I wish I had a, a more original answer uh, than I do because the miracle of the United States was that for the first time in human history it instituted a government which had very strict limits on what it could do. And those limits were taken very seriously for the first 150, 60 years of the country And it produced a culture that was unique in all the world. That's what American exceptionalism is all about. Piggybacking on what Jonah was just talking about, uh, about uh, people being distrustful of others, what what was the American image until, I don't, don't know if it's still true, but it used to be true, in Europe, Americans are so trusting. They come up to people they've never met before. They'll confide secrets in them. They will trust what they're saying. And we were taken as being incredibly naive. Well, it was a culture which I think stemmed directly from the fact that if the government can't do a whole bunch of things, if people have to get along together, if they're restrained from the use of force, a lot of these things become possible where the cultural contradictions of capitalism were avoided for one hell of a long time in this country. We went through incredible economic growth. We had gilded ages with the Newport cottages and all the rest of the, of the extravagance there, and we still remained a culture in which we didn't always live up to it, but Americans were supposed to believe we were no better than the other guy, and that, that there was a fundamental egalitarianism in, in, the, in the accepted culture. And in my view, and this is why I say I wish I had something new to say. I don't. Once you let the barriers down, once the government no longer has limits on its power, all of these other forces come into play. They are inexorable. They're inevitable. There is no
1: hope. We are doomed. That's,
2: Last <laughs> that's <the> question. Now <laughs> we yeah, go back there. So, yeah, but the back of.
1: Thank you to both of you for coming and talking to us. My name's... Nick. Arthur Brooks is gonna fire both of us yeah, once he gets, a, <laughs> he gets the tape of this. Gettysburg College. we have a women's studies department. We have a Latina studies department. We have an Africana studies department. We have a peace and justice major. We have a queer, we have queer studies classes. We have queer theater studies classes. The second one made more sense than the first one, but anyway. <laughs> From my point of view, uh, Gettysburg is probably better off, uh, in terms of political balance than most other college campuses on America, but uh, to borrow, turn a phrase, we're by all means losing ground. Um, these people in these departments throw their bodies upon the wheels and levers of decision makings. They expand their own departments. They demand and they shame anybody who doesn't agree with them into going along with them. And eventually, it just keeps moving and progress, for lack of a better word, continues. How do we begin to claw back all this ground that we've lost?
2: Well, I haven't been very successful at it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, what was it, the quote I saw from Charles Krauthammer? Charles Krauthammer was a dear friend of both Jonah's and mine. And they had this wonderful quote that was on the Internet today, and it's not going to be quite accurate. But, but Charles said that to not say what you believe bluntly and forthrightly is to betray, betray your whole life. And so the first thing is don't be silent. And I'm sure a great many of you, by the fact that you're here, probably are not being silent, but there has to be a willingness to confront confront that kind of thing head-on. and it will get you called names. it will get you called a racist, it'll get you called sexist, it'll get called homophobic. you can you name it. And basically, you've got to be willing to have that happen.
0: Yeah, so I, I mean, I did not think that the subtitle of tonight's talk would be Why You Should Take a Bath with a Toaster. Um, but, uh, um, I, uh, I actually think, I think higher education is, is, I don't want to, I don't want to go full Glenn Reynolds on this because I really haven't studied it that closely, but I do think that higher education is, It feels a little bit like the Habsburgs in 1913 to me. And it is full of calcified guilds where they are arguing about things that no one in the rest of the country could give a rat's ass about. And that if the people who were actually subsidizing or paying for these things actually really understood what was being taught... Um, there would be a much quicker corrective. But one of the reasons why, I mean, this is a classic example of this point I was trying to make about faction and, and guilds and Adam Smith's point about conspiracies against the public. There are few guilds in American life that are more cocooned and self-protected behind vast moats than higher education. In those kinds of situations, when the change comes, it's all the more sudden because they were so removed from the forces of gradual improvement and that, that normally come with the market, and so I can't really predict for how that bubble changes. I mean, one of the things I think is kind of nasty. I can okay
2: yeah because I'm writing a book about it, and so naturally I know uh, since I'm writing a book about it, and that is that that uh, so many of the premises of the academic orthodoxy are busily being just. Excavated underneath by the hard sciences. And I'm talking about genetics and neuroscience. And before any of you start to get nervous, I don't have any, uh, any, <laughs> <laughs> I don't have any bombshells to throw. I'm simply saying that a great deal of what is taken as absolute truth on college campuses, whether you're talking about sex as a social construct, gender as a social construct, or race is a social construct, or intersectionality is what uh, determines people's lives. In all sorts of ways, these things are just wrong, <laughs> empirically wrong. It's not scary, and, and, and they're empirically wrong in ways that are going to eventually be impossible to deny, and by eventually, I'm not talking about 50 years from now, I'm talking over the next decade that right now, at the same time that you have people in academia saying increasingly silly things, you have a growing body of knowledge that is rigorous and replicated and uh, very strong, and it's it's basically going to be this. It's going to be uh, like Aristotelian physics after Galileo dropped objects from a building, and guess what? Aristotelian physics didn't work anymore. In the social sciences... You can argue about things indefinitely because you can always come up with another regression analysis or another uh, experiment with 60 college sophomores that says what you wanted to say. But the hard sciences, uh, that's not true. And the hard sciences are going to get desperately in the way of academic um, pet theories that are empirically wrong.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I got to say, I mean, I don't want to get mired in this um, for all sorts of reasons, um, but... I'm more skeptical about that than you are in in part because the nature of the cultural fight that will ensue from the cha- from the thunderclap thunderclap revelations that you're talking about is not one that our side is hugely prepared to win or fight in a way that attracts people to it. And we can have this conversation more another time, but it does raise a point that I do want to get to. One of the problems with college campuses is is just, well, let me put it this way. Political correctness has been around for 40 years, 50 years. I mean, when I was in college, you know, back in the Pleistocene, we were talking about political correctness. Political correctness has a much bigger hold on this generation, on your generation, than it ever had on my generation. And we were still talking about left-wing campuses and all that kind of stuff. What changed wasn't the ideas, really, because it's the same bullshit ideas with just different coats of paint on them that I was hearing 40 years ago. What changed was the kids. Jonathan Haidt has written a lot about this. My friend Steve Horwitz has written a lot about this. Your generation, and I see this with my own kid. I mean, I'm, I'm, I plead guilty to a lot of this. You were talking about earlier about ecumenical niceness. That starts in frickin' nursery school. Where the worst sin you can commit, the worst crime you can commit is hurting someone's feelings. And uh, there's a zero tolerance for bullying. I'm against bullying. I hate bullies. It's one of the reasons why I don't like the current president. One of the reasons. It's a long list. But at the same time, if you go your entire life where your parents are driving you go your, all your childhood, your parents are driving you to tutors and driving you to leagues and driving you to this appointment and that appointment and all the kind of rest, if in school you've never had a serious or, a, or not just a, but many serious altercations or interactions with people, hostile interactions with people, where you didn't call upon a third party intercessor to adjudicate your disagreements, you know, where a teacher, a parent, a coach comes along and, hey, come on everybody, play nice, right? You grow up, you can be really smart. Yeah, I am sure, I know for a fact that all the kids in this room are smart, and I know for a fact that all the kids in this room got into better colleges than I did, because I was rejected from everyone I applied to. Um, but there's more story to that. Anyway, um, and so, you get these kids who might be really smart, but have not socialized in the way previous generations. I mean, like, when I was a kid, my mom would often kick me out of the house and say, come back when the streetlights turn on wasn't always great. I mean I was mugged about six times before I turned 12. Right? I grew up in New York City in the 1970s.
2: Um, you don't actually have to go to that extreme. Yeah, yeah. To, that's to, true. Uh...
0: I mean I remember once my mom when I was about five years old sent me downstairs to the head shop to buy her a carton of cigarettes. And the lady at the the lady who ran the head shop was like, I'm not selling it you're like a child. And my mom comes down and just Pour this poor woman a new one. This is my kid. If I want him to buy cigarettes, blah 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 blah. That was one of the only times my mom intervened in an <laughs> interpersonal conflict. Okay, um, and so if you have these kids, and I'm talking about kids from elite families, and you know, and, and we define elite however you want, they go to college, and what would you expect from these kinds of kids? Well, you would expect. Well, first of all, if it's if being made to feel uncomfortable is a, such a terrible thing, maybe you'd want some sort of Warning, like a trigger warning before a professor says something discomforting, right? Maybe, as in the case of some schools, um, because none of you guys have dates anymore, uh, you would want a, uh, some sort of contract about how to negotiate sexual relations between two consenting individuals. So what I'm saying is I'm not necessarily impugning any individual person here. But in general, this generation, broadly speaking, is the generation that women's studies departments have been waiting for. The political correctness stuff on a lot of college campuses works so much better now because so many more of the kids are amenable to it. Now, on the flip side, this is a point I, I often make to conservative... I used to talk to a lot of conservative I mean, I've probably been on 100 campuses the last 15 years. Um, and I used to make this... Point often when I would speak to conservative groups on campuses. On the flip side, not everything about political correctness is bad. Some of political correctness is an attempt to come up with manners for a more modern and diverse society that show people respect. And I can't tell you how many times I've had to have this conversation with, with conservative activist kids. Just because being a jackass is politically incorrect doesn't mean being a jackass is good. And there are an enormous number of kids today, and I, I really think this Charlie Kirk, Turning Point USA, is part of the problem, not part of the solution, who teach to be a jerk is cool because, it, you know, you own the libs. And you get to drink their tears, and they're so freaking delicious. <laughs> and if if you're being an ass as a matter of ideological priority... You're just an ass. <laughs> <laughs> and so yeah. what is required in the door-to-door fight on college campuses is to have a conversation with people and be civil about it. Be forceful, be you know principled, but don't be an ass. And that's a, it's amazing how radical a suggestion that is to some people these
2: days. Let's see. Let's get to uh, – I have had a real gender imbalance in the people I've been calling upon. Huh, but... I've been shocked.
0: <laughs> so offended.
2: But – I didn't have any women with their hands up.
0: Could you identify as female? That would help a lot. Uh, I'm afraid I can. I apologize
4: for that. But I do identify as male, him, uh, his, that sort of thing.
5: I study at University. Uh, My question is for Dr. Murray, and it's a question regarding the purpose of the bell curve. Um, So I'm curious, what was the purpose of proving the IQ disparity between the races? I understand that that wasn't the main point of the book but a lot of your critics have seen that as you being racist or trying to prove some racist point. So my question is, what can we learn from the disparity between the races, and is there any hope for the future, that sort of thing?
2: Thank you. Now, my hearing is bad. Did I hear you say that proving that disparity was the main point of the book? I said it was. Was not. See, that's the best problem with being hard of hearing. Uh, Well, I will give you the straightforward answer to it, which is that we were trying to deal with the relationships of IQ to a variety of outcomes in American society, and Dick Hernstein and I said, "Okay, uh, what do we do about race?" One of the things we did about race was that we had the se- several chapters which documented the relationship of IQ to social and economic outcomes among a purely non-Hispanic uh, white population, and said, "Look, these relationships are there. Look at him; he's he's depressed. He's wondering what the hell I'm yeah. going to say next." This is great body language here. <laughs> yeah. So so that was one of the ways we dealt with it. We said, these relationships exist in non-Latino whites. But then we said, well, could we ignore race altogether? And the answer is, you know, if we do that, what we're going to get is, oh, well, everybody knows that IQ tests uh, are are culturally biased. They don't measure anything, and all that's uh, relevant to uh, uh, the disadvantaged And so we can't ignore that if we're going to say these relationships are things which are are changing American social structure in general. So, uh, short answer, I'm not going to go on with this, uh, is that we wrote a chapter with exquisite care, uh, such that you have never seen direct quotes from the chapter on racial differences in IQ, And the reason you have never seen direct quotes is you cannot quote from that uh, chapter directly without realizing that the uproar was a fraud. The the uh, one that I think we put in italics was that you can face all the facts on ethnic differences in IQ and not run screaming from the room because they aren't scary. Didn't work, but we tried real hard. But that's why we dealt with it. If we hadn't dealt with it, it would have created a whole new cascade of problems for us.
0: Yeah, I am not gonna touch any of that except to say that um <laughs> um it's worth pointing out, I mean it's weird to me in a little ways, because you haven't mentioned coming apart, but you mentioned by the people. Coming apart only dealt with white people. And the reason it only dealt with white people, it's a brilliant book. It was really basically Donald Trump the prequel, is that the problems we have in this country are not race driven. The problems we have in this country are prior to all of that. They're way upstream of partisan politics and they are derived from cultural and social transformations that we have to look, look at squarely, but that maybe can't be solved by politics so much as not nearly as much as they can be made worse by politics. And I think it was, it's, I'm not going to get into a ranking of Charles's books, but it, the, book that is most important to read for the moment that we're in is that book and it holds up extremely well. The numbers may be a little out of date, but the, the they haven't changed much but they haven't changed much and the trends are all the same. And now let me intrude to give you a safe few words about our second sponsor this week, the Bonson group. Have you ever wondered how the people managing your money view the world? Many of us who share certain ideological convictions about society and government, would love like-minded professionals involved in the management of our financial affairs, but certainly are not willing to sacrifice investment sophistication or expertise to find such people. Fortunately, you do not have to. The Bonson Group is one of the nation's top independent wealth management firms, where competence and experience are not discarded, and yet a firm understanding of conservative principles and the superiority of free markets are foundational to what they do. Managing $1.5 billion with offices in Newport Beach, California and New York City, the Bonson Group is a legal fiduciary, meaning they have nothing to sell you. They receive no commission and offer pure investment advice completely free of conflicts of interest. At the Bonson Group, you will receive a first-class, highly customized wealth management experience from investment management to tax planning to estate planning to charitable planning and so much more. Detailed portfolio updates, market commentary, and an analysis of politics and your money are all delivered to you each and every week. Not cookie-cutter content written by Wall Street's most liberal thoughtless knobs, but rather actual written analysis from the Bonson Group's chief investment officer, coincidentally named David Bonson, every single week. Check out the Bonson Group at DividendCafe.com where you will find weekly market commentary that reflects a keen understanding of financial markets and not just a crass effort to sell you gold. From www.DividendCafe.com, you can find all the information you want about the Bonson Group consistently heralded as one of the very top financial advisory firms in the country by Barron's, Forbes, The Financial Times, and more. So check out the Bonson Group at DividendCafe.com and see how Wall Street investment talent actually can mix with a deep conservative ideology. Who's next? I see a woman. <laughs> yeah, there's, there's, I go, I go for it. <laughs>
3: um, so I kind of want to expand on one of the previous questions um, characterizing um, kind of the introduction of women's studies and programs like that as losing ground. So I guess my question would be, um, a lot of women's studies departments have produced scholarship that have been important to feminism and progress for women, and today is one of the best times in American history to be a woman. So I guess, would you characterize that as truly losing ground?
0: No, I wouldn't. Um, And look, I I would suspect I took more women's studies courses than about at least 85% of the people in this room. I went to an all-women's college. I took more classes involving Foucault than I did the Federalist Papers. And, um, the gains that women have made, um, which I think are important and real and welcome, have much less to do with women's studies departments than women's studies departments want to tell you. Look, I mean, let's put it this way. I have no problem with the existence of women's studies departments. What I have a problem with is the, um, Lack of balance. I mean, in my book, uh, which you can all buy a second copy of, uh, <laughs> there's, I, you know, I went and looked at Yale. Yale has more professors teaching women's studies than it does professors teaching the American founding, by far. Yale, and most, I'm sure this is true of almost every Ivy League school, has more stu- more professors teaching things like queer studies. Latino history, all these things. I'm not saying those things shouldn't be taught. I want those things to be taught. But can we not have some room for just sort of the actual story of America? And this is a debate that is, I think, part of the problem with with women's studies and things like that is it ghettoizes those stories rather than weaving them in into the mainstream of American history. Part of the argument I make in my book is that I want I desperately want this country to teach things about the women's suffrage movement, about, about slavery, about the Trail of Tears. By all means, I want to teach those things. But I want those things to be taught as part of the story of the improving nature of America rather than defining America by its sins and its mistakes. And the way we teach, take slavery, for example, which was a moral horror, is that it still defines America. Now, we fought a civil war to end slavery. We amended the Constitution a few times to end slavery. We had a civil rights movement to end the the legal, vestigial parts of of slavery. I'm not saying there aren't still parts of slavery now. That's a story of social improvement. I absolutely, and I try, it it annoys the hell out of some of my conservative friends. The Founding Fathers were hypocrites because we didn't include women. We didn't include blacks. Um, We didn't include poor non-landowners, property owners. But there's a glorious and wonderful thing about hypocrisy that people don't appreciate. Hypocrisy illuminates a principle. If you have no principles, you cannot be a hypocrite. You can only be a hypocrite if you're violating some ideal. And the hypocrisy illuminates the ideal. And so the story of America is a story of us overcoming these things in a lot, in a large part. The interesting thing about Western civilization, other than the hypocrisy point, about when it comes to slavery, isn't that we had slavery, but that we got rid of it. Every major civilization in the last 10,000 years had slavery. America and the West is the only civilization that was founded on a principle, that was had built into its DNA, that said, ultimately, if you follow through this logic, you can't have slavery. So the interesting thing about Western civilization isn't that we had it, it's that we got rid of it. The story that you get from, from women's studies departments is, first of all, I think profoundly schizophrenic about, you know, are women equal or different? Are they the same or different? But moreover, it is grounded in a sort of a Nietzschean resentment against the system itself, which I think is entirely unproductive. I would be very interested to know of all the progress that women have made in America, um, if you wanted to take, come up with some list that defined successful women, uh, CEOs, scientists, go down the list, right? Out of that... Th- the 1,000 most successful women, how many of them were women's studies majors? My suspicion is it's a very small number because what most women's studies departments teach is not particularly useful in the marketplace unless you want to go become a women's studies professor.
2: Uh, yes, we'll go back here.
5: Uh, I read uh, your work in particular, Dr. Murray, and um, one of the things is especially, is that, uh, I guess, white America is losing ground as the nation is becoming more and more diverse. By 2048, uh, we're going to have more um, people of color than white. And we've already had two black presidents and one orange president right now. So, and. Who's the we, second black president? Bill Clinton. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> but uh, to get to my point, uh, our nation is becoming more and more diverse, and it's and it's the not... funnier
0: answer, by the way, would have been Barack Obama. <laughs> but anyway,
5: <laughs> no, but um, but as our nation, as we're progressing, we're becoming more and more diverse, and it's a trend that's not going to be able to change. And throughout our history, we've always had the struggle of becoming the country that we are. And I was just wondering, from your point of view, because we've I guess we've heard a lot from the left left's point of view a quote on how America should become. How do you think uh, the United States, as a society as a whole, make sure that these demographic changes can be handled, and we won't descend, I guess, into conflict, and we won't lose the greater uh, identity of our nation?
2: Federalism uh, is is the is the key, I think. Uh, first, you've got to realize that that this country is very weirdly. Different. We have X percent black, X percent Hispanic, X percent uh, or YZ percent uh, Asian and so forth. You have vast stretches of the Midwest where the towns are still, you know, 90 percent non-Latino white. Uh, you have uh, in the South, you have the historic characterization of a very high concentrations of African-Americans along with whites. Out in the Southwest, you have uh, a, a very strong mixture of Latino and this. And, and so all of these different cultures that are evolving can, can work it out as long, I think, as they have a sense that they are allowed to work it out their own way. And I'm kind of optimistic on this score because historically, when you talk about federalism and communities being free, to sort of organized themselves as they saw fit, that was seen as a cover for racism, and that's what the Southerners wanted so that they'd be free to practice segregation and so forth. You know what? Portland, Oregon, has a culture of its own that it doesn't want people interfering with. Uh, Burlington, Vermont, has a culture of its own they don't want people fooling with. And it's a culture of the left, but they, for the first time in a long time, I think lots of people on the left are living in communities where they have a lifestyle that they want to maintain. They don't want to oppress anybody else. They just sort of kind of want to be left alone. And before, it's always been people on the right who kind of wanted to be left alone. And insofar as that is happening, I think there is room now, particularly in view of all the ways in which the former bad things of local control can be more easily prevented... I'm referring, of course, to the evening news, which loves nothing more than to uncover uh, some oppression somewhere, that you now have a situation where a lot of of mm-hmm. letting people alone in their own communities to to live the lives they see fit is way more feasible than it used to be, and that you have lots more people who are conscious of wanting to have that than it used to be. I guess that's one of the few ways in which I... I'm optimistic. Um, of course, the the flip side of that is historically that the people who have money use their money to live their lives as they see fit, and then they don't want other people to have that same freedom. I'm hopeful if that that's starting to break down. Just yeah. call me a starry-eyed optimist. I, I agree with all that. I'm not going to do my
0: whole federalism spe- spiel, but. Um... I think demographic predictions, I think political analysis based on demographic, de- demographic predictions are fraught with peril. Uh, first of all, the, the ethnicities that of color that people are betting are going to identify as non-white, uh, there's a really interesting trend in them not... I mean, I, I, I don't like the racial categories to begin with, but the reason one of the reasons why charles keeps saying non-white latinos is because an enormous number of latinos define themselves as white a lot of asians essentially as they get richer to start to define themselves as essentially white the the rates of intermarriage are enormous the prediction one of the reasons why you got trump when i say you i don't mean it's your fault but um but is that the democrats so wildly invested in these demographic fantasies about the way the society was going to move that they started cheering it. You know, you find this rhetoric all over the place about about how excited liberals were at the idea that whites were going to lose their cultural power. And that activated a nasty backlash among a lot of whites. And part of the reason why it's so annoying is because it wasn't true. And you know, there's this assumption that Hispanics are sort of Democrats by birth. Well, the data show that as, de- as Hispanics become more, uh, move up the socioeconomic ladder, they become indistinguishable from the median voter. Doesn't mean they're all Republicans, but you just, but the predictive power of their Hispanic or their Latino status just lessens enormously. And the reason why Latinos tend to be more democratic is because they, right now, partly because of the immigration and all the rest, they just tend to be poorer. When they get more wealthy, they go up. Moreover, the whole idea of lumping everybody with a with a Latino surname as a, as as sort of somehow sharing the same attitudes and cultures—I mean, put a Cuban and an El Salvadoran and a Colombian in a room. And, and tell them, oh, you guys all think alike and see what happens. Um, you know, or lumping all Asians together for that matter, right? This is one of the problems that you get when you start playing these games with these numbers. There are enormous cultural differences. There used to be crazily big cultural differences among different groups of ethnic whites. My dad until his dying days had just the tiniest bit of anger at the Irish because one of the, Favorite pastimes of Irish kids in the Bronx in the 1940s was to beat up the Jewish kids, and but he always liked the Italians because yeah, it was the Italians. And um, <laughs> and so my point is is that this glosses over enormous cultural differences and making these vast predictions that somehow Democrats are going to win simply because they're the non-racist party. I'm very skeptical.
2: of You know, I've I've uh, I think an awful lot of the Ethnic hostility and so forth is artificial and propped up. I am struck by the distinction between the angry rhetoric in the public square and the enormously positive changes in day to day interactions among real people. I won't go into it's anecdotal data, but I live in, in a small town in Maryland, uh, and the changes for the better in black-white relationships over the last 50 years there are just mammoth. And and day-to-day interactions
0: are yeah, well, terrific. But there is actually a really great... If you go to, yeah. go to
2: humanprogress.org,
0: it's this thing put out by Cato, yeah. it's great. When I hear people talk about white supremacy today, look, I, there are legitimate arguments about white privilege and all that kind of stuff, there really are. But at the same time, the idea that you hear... Often that, you know, America is as bigoted as they've ever been. It's as racist. If you just look at intermarriage rates over the last 40 years. You know, something like one out of seven people, white people are marrying people of a different race. The idea that they're super racist, but they just want to have babies with non-white people is kind of hard to get my head around. And if you look at the surveys that ask, what would you do if a if a black uh, if white Southerners? What would you do if a black person moved into your neighborhood or moved next door to you, just over the last forty years? And um, it used to be like in the South, it was something like like at the time of the Civil Rights Act. I mean, I'm kind of butchering this, but it's it's close. Like ninety three percent of white Southerners said they would move if a black person moved next door to them, and now it's like two percent or something like that. Some of those white people are probably lying, but even the fact that some of them feel like they have to lie is a form of progress. Um, because we've shamed this idea that you could actually say something like that. There's been enormous racial progress in this country, but there are certain people, so we're getting back to the priesthood class, who are deeply invested as a business model in claiming that it's only getting worse because... That's how you get them to come speak to your group.
2: Well, you guys have had a very heavy dose of, uh, of public policy, and I think we have come to the end of it. Uh, yeah. I'm looking at Tyler. And
6: we could do one more.
2: Well, let's do one more. Okay. I'll let you choose, okay. Tyler.
6: How about right here? What an enormous amount of pressure
2: on this question. <laughs> I mean, I, if this question
0: stinks. Oh, my God.
6: My question is for, for both of you, and it's about mass incarceration. So um, I... Mr. Goldberg, I have not read your book. I skimmed the chapter on the family, and I, I didn't see mass incarceration in there as one of the causes of family breakdown. And I just wanted to share an, an anecdotal experience from one of my summers that I think speaks to the, the gravity of this problem as something that we will have to confront as a generation. So I coached debate for a summer, in the Mississippi Delta, and one of my students invited me to a Father's Day service at her church, and there were no fathers in the church. There were grandfathers, and there were grandsons, and there were no fathers, and a lot of them were in jail, and a lot of it was because of nonviolent drug offenses, and so I was just wondering if you could sort of give your estimate of, in the scale of, of the problems confronting us, how, how big is this one? How big is mass incarceration?
0: It's a good question, and it's, and it's, a, it's a fair criticism. And it's probably something I should have looked into writing about in the, in the chapter. At the same time, there is a lot of mischief that is done with the statistics on a lot of these things, right? When you say that uh, people are in jail because of nonviolent drug offenses – some non-trivial number of those, I'm not going to say it's the majority or the vast majority or just the significant minority or plurality, whatever. Some very non-trivial number of those involve cases that were pled down as part of the negotiating process to the non-violent drug offense. The idea that there are just a vast number of uh, non-violent drug dealers out there, I think is a little unfair or inaccurate. And the idea that there are a bunch of people, there are large numbers of people who are just smoking weed on a Saturday night and get swept up by the FBI and thrown in jail, I think is inaccurate. That said, I have no problem whatsoever about looking at these problems square in the face. I personally have been arguing for 20 years again in favor of drug decriminaliz- uh, 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 marijuana decriminalization and eventually legalization. I think it's happening way too fast right now. I would much rather the Laboratories of Democracy take 10 years, do it in Colorado, see what happens, rather than everybody just into the pool all at once. But it's happening, and I don't think it's a necessarily a terrible thing. I am still very much in favor, and I'm, I'm off the reservation in National Review. We, the magazine has been against the drug war for 30 years. I am still very much in favor of keeping things like heroin and cocaine and meth illegal. Some of that is from personal experience. My brother was a drug addict and died. Um, I've known lots of people whose lives have been ruined. One of the main problems with the libertarian argument about drug legalization is that libertarianism depends upon, getting back to your classical liberalism stuff, drug legalization, I mean, uh, libertarianism depends on the assumption that we're all rational actors. And the problem is, is that addiction makes you a non-rational actor. By all means, let's talk about legalizing it all, but let's also accept the fact that you will have a non-trivial increase in drug addicts in this country, if you start giving Procter and Gamble the ability to advertise heroin during the Super Bowl, and which is something that a lot of libertarians want, and so I think there's a lot of credit and a lot of legitimacy to the Black Lives Matter stuff about, about police. I think the cameras on police are important, but I think both—it's a lot like the death penalty debate. There are a lot of games played on both sides because everybody is a hundred percent convinced. That God is on their side in the debate, and it turns out that these issues are a lot grayer and more complicated.
2: Just two quick comments. Uh, one is uh, that Jonah's quite right. Then th- there are numbers out there. Barack Obama really wanted to identify uh, large numbers of people who were in prison because they really were just simply, you know, low-level drug users and so forth. And what Jonah said is correct. What they went to, what they were sentenced for, was that what they had done. Involve violence, involve more serious things. But here's my main take on whether, uh, whether too many people from the black community are being imprisoned or too many people from the Latino community. I think that whatever is done should be done with the maximum participation of the communities in which the offenders live. What you do not want is some judge up and lives up on the North Shore of Chicago uh saying oh i'm not going to uh put this poor young black offender uh in prison i'm going to send him back to the south chicago neighborhood that he was victimizing if the people in the south that south chicago neighborhood say great uh this is a kid who's gotten a raw deal and, and we're happy to have him back in the neighborhood that's fine if the people in the south chicago neighborhood say hey wait a minute this per- person was was beating people up he was robbing people we don't want him on our streets then He's committed crimes for which an appropriate punishment is imprisonment. Have we overused prison? Yeah, I think we have. Has there been just very inefficient policies? Yes, there have been. But it's a case of don't make rules for other people because you're being nice to the offenders if you are not willing to pay the price for not putting them in jail. And we have way too much of that in this country. Thank okay, you. folks.
0: I'm sorry. I... All right. Again, thank you, everybody, for your indulgence in putting up with this unusual episode of The Remnant. Things are going to start calming down in the weeks ahead. Uh, we have some fun episodes coming up. And please keep up the reviews on iTunes or Stitcher or Google Play or wherever you can review um podcasts, particularly if you're inclined to give us a positive review. Uh follow us on Twitter at, at Jonah Remnant and uh you can send email to us at theremnantpod at gmail dot com. Until next week, uh I'm Jonah Goldberg, thanks for tuning in and say hi, Jack. Bye. Or hi. Or whatever. See you guys.